This is Broadcast Mysteries, a podcast. A story about a case of the unexplained, the uncanny, and the unsolved. I'm Carolee Gerwin. For the last six months, I had been researching the life of a man that no one had really heard of, and with good reason. If you weren't a member of his family, or a friend, or maybe a co-worker, there really is no reason to. I know that sounds harsh, but really, most of us do very little to warrant any kind of mass recognition, myself included. Did you have any idea who I was before listening to this podcast? You still don't really know me. You don't even know what I look like. Not unless you googled me, in which case, oh well. And even then, how well do you know your friends, or your family, or anyone really? How well can we really know another person? Everyone has secrets. It's normal. It's human. And Cole Atkins was very much just a normal, everyday Canadian. He went to work every day. He cared for his family, especially his infant daughter, Roxy, who adored him. He loved his wife, Caroline, or Carrie as she likes to go by. He had friends. He played poker with a few of them a few times a month. He was responsible. He was reliable. He was smart and funny and he loved watching tennis. He wasn't much of an athlete, so I'm told, but he loved to watch it. He would say on many occasions to anyone who would listen that tennis was like boxing, one-on-one, a battle where the best man won. That's a direct quote from Kerry, who told me this with a sort of pride. Cole had a life, a life that he loved, a life that is, for lack of a better word, normal. Until on Tuesday, August 20th, 1997, he vanished. When Cole failed to show up for family dinner, it was Tuesday. It was lasagna night. It was his favorite. Carrie wasn't initially worried. Cole had stayed late at work more than a few times and would sometimes forget to call and let Carrie know that he would be late. But as it got later and later, Carrie did begin to worry. And when she called Cole's office and was told that he had left at 4.30, the typical time Cole usually left, she felt, and these are her own words, that something was very, very wrong. Carrie began to call around, to friends, to co-workers, to even a pub that Cole frequented called the Dark Tower, which was a name oozing with coincidence, something we'll cover in a later episode. The Dark Tower was like a cross between a bar and your childhood kitchen table. It was a place you could get good food, alcohol, and play tabletop board games. But no one had seen him, not his friends or his co-workers. If he had gone into the dark tower, no one had remembered, or no one had cared. Cole was last seen leaving work at approximately 425 by a secretary named Joan, who was also leaving. They put out an APB on his car, a 1991 Blue Dodge Spirit, but nothing that matched that description ever turned up. After weeks of seemingly no leads, no witnesses, no new information, The cops were stumped. Carrie recalled one officer working on the case had told her that Cole had simply just disappeared. But let's go back a bit. As I said, I've spent the last six months, really the last eight, but the last six full-time researching the case of Cole Adkins. The case was first brought to my attention by a man named Jamie Lloyd, who is Cole's cousin and lifelong best friend, who I had met at a dinner party. 
Somewhere in between our conversation about what we were watching on Netflix or the up-and-coming political election, it got brought up that I had experience in investigative journalism. Though at the time, I was taking a brief hiatus from the cutthroat world of investigative journalism to the supposedly more relaxed field of teaching. I found out very quickly that, sure, teaching is less cutthroat, but it is in no way relaxing. Anyway, he had brought up Cole and told me the details of his case, and he had me interested. I told him to send me everything he had on the case, and I'd look over it. I had never looked into a missing person before. Most of my investigation skills had been in political journalism, but summer vacation was coming up, and I figured it was probably better than binge-watching Friends for the umpteenth time. After looking over the case, I found myself agreeing with Jamie. Things just weren't adding up. I went back and talked to Jamie and got him to tell me the story he told me at the party, but this time while being recorded. Here it is. Hey, how are you? I'm good, thanks for asking. Let me just say that Jamie is a confident salt and pepper owner of a small but profitable contracting company. On the surface, there's nothing that really signals that he's sad or damaged or obsessed or anything of the sort. Alright, well tell me about what you told me at the party, about Cole's case. So according to police reports and witness statements, Cole left his office, and I mean his physical room, sometime in between 4.25 and 4.30. He was seen by a secretary and greeted her goodbye, which according to police acquired evidence shows up on the camera in the lobby of his place of work at 4.26. I've seen the video. He's very much there, and he very much leaves. Now, no one seems to be able to tell you what happens from the time he left the view of the cameras, which is basically the second he steps outside of the front doors, to when his keycard is swiped through the parking lot gate at 4.49. That's a long time to get to your car to leave, is it not? It is. I mean, I've been that lot since, and there is no way. That lot isn't even that big. It fits maybe 50 cars at most. Even if he had somehow forgotten where he parked, there's still an absurd amount of time. He had to have run into someone. Now, whether that someone had something to do with his disappearance, that's a whole different question. He's right. It is very small. A sort of typical small lot for a small company. Now, I wasn't allowed into the building, not that it mattered. The place has since been turned into the regional office for a large and very famous coffee shop company that will remain nameless. It's not just that it's small. There's no way you could get lost in there. I walked from the front door to the gate, which is also no longer operational, in less than 60 seconds. 20 minutes in there feels like an eternity. Is it possible that maybe he just up and left? Like, that happens all the time. Probably more than all the time. People leave. It's sort of just what they do, right? Yeah, it's possible. But in the same way it's possible that a meteor could fall out of the sky and crush us both to death right now. <laughs> right. Cole was just... He's just not the type, you know. I knew him. If there had been an issue... If he had been planning on leaving, there would have been a sign. Right. I mean, even if things weren't great with Carolyn, he was still not the type, you know? He wasn't the only one who thought this. Most of the people I talked to, and these are people who claim to know Cole quite well, they all said that something wasn't right about what happened, that Cole wouldn't just leave. So what do you think happened? <sighs> I wish I could tell you. I don't know much, but what I do know is... Something bad happened in that parking lot. There will be more with Jamie later, but now 
Let's take a second to learn about who Cole Atkins was. Cole Ian Atkins was born on June 29, 1968, in Camrose, a small Alberta town just southwest of Edmonton. His parents, Fred and Nancy Atkins, were what you might call radical thinkers of their time. Cole's father was a professor at the University of Alberta Augustana in the chemistry department, and his mother was one of the foremothers of the women's rights and civil rights movements that exploded in the 1960s. Both Fred and Nancy were investigated under the Padlocked Act, which was like a Canadian version of the McCarthy Act, but neither were ever convicted. Despite this, Cole had a fairly quiet and normal childhood. He spent most of his childhood going to public school in Augustana, until his family moved to Edmonton in 1976. In 1983, Cole Atkins was accepted to and attended the University of Alberta, which from here on out will be referred to as the U of A. And in the early spring of 1985, Cole met Caroline Carpenter. By the summer of 1986, they were married. Cole followed in his father's footsteps, sort of, in getting a Bachelor of Science in Physics, and went on to get his Master's in Applied Physics from the U of A a few years later. According to Carey, the next four years were a struggle. Despite graduating college, Carey had trouble finding work. She told me, I had a degree in English Lit. What the hell did I expect? She worked at the Edmonton Public Library, walking distance from the tiny bachelor apartment the young married couple shared. At night, she worked at a small diner, serving coffee and hot chicken sandwiches to a customer base that Carrie described as eclectic to say the least. While getting his master's, Cole worked, nights mostly, folding and sorting laundry at an industrial laundry press. When I asked Carrie about this time, she said they were busy but they were happy. A young couple in love. It wasn't everyone's idea of happiness, but they were alive and healthy and they had each other. And soon they would have much more. In early 1988, Carrie discovered she was pregnant. Robert Frederick Atkins was born on November 13, 1988. He was a welcome addition to the Atkins household. By then, Cole had started a new job, a job that paid him enough to quit his job at the industrial laundry and allow Carrie to stay at home and care for their child. They were happy, they were comfortable, they were a normal Canadian family. And in 1991, they would add to that family when Carrie became pregnant again. But this happy surprise was met with a tragedy no parent should have to endure. In Carrie's fourth month of her pregnancy, only a month after actually finding out she was pregnant, their four-year-old son Robert, or Bobby as they had come to call him, was diagnosed with leukemia. Four months later, Bobby Atkins died of his illness. I mean, I can't imagine what that must be like, losing a child that young. It's like you just had time to get to know who they might be. Not to mention, Carrie was now eight months pregnant, practically ready to pop. That's her words, not mine. And they had to bury a child on the eve of welcoming one into this world. I spoke to Carrie about this time and how it affected her and how it affected Cole. Hey, how are you? How have you been? Good. It's reading week at school, so it's a big week. I bet. That must be like the Super Bowl for libraries, right? Something like that, yeah. This isn't the first time we've spoken. Over the last few months, I had spoken to Carrie more than a few times over the phone and even a couple times in person. But still, this was the first time talking about the death of her child and the first time I would be recording her. 
I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a little nervous. But uh, yeah, I'm just going to get down to it. Tell me about your son and how, how that was. You mean his death? Yes. Well, it was a long time ago, but I'll try my best. I think I was sort of numb of it at the time, and Bobby was diagnosed, and then we had about three months or so to come to terms with it, to ready ourselves. Can you do that? I mean, is that even possible? I don't really think it is, no. But they try and tell you that, the doctors and counselors, and they really hammer it in there. and They're just trying to help, of course, but... Nothing can prepare you for that. No, nothing can. But you do your best, right? Honestly, I think I handled it better than Cole did. I was more or less forced to. I mean, I went through a quieter grieving process. I gave birth to a beautiful baby girl less than three weeks later. I really just can't imagine what that must have been like. It wasn't easy. You know, a lot of parents might resent their new baby, and a lot of people thought I might go into postpartum depression, but I didn't. And I loved Roxy from the second I saw her. But Cole... He didn't, or...? No, he did. Roxy was his little girl. It's just... I never stopped thinking about him, or what happened. He's he's always in the back of my mind, but just not in such a concentrated way. I mean, I haven't thought about this in a really long time, but I still miss him. I miss him every day. Carrie is a head librarian at the West Edmonton Public Library and is doing very well. There will be more of Roxy in later episodes. You might have noticed, I've sort of gone out of my way to not name the specific place where Cole worked at the time of his disappearance. That's partly for dramatic effect, but mostly because the details of Cole's work life are vague at best. The place where Cole worked from October of 1988 until August of 1997, where he went missing, is called Revolver Industries. Sounds like the sort of terrible evil corporation you'd find in bad 90s action movies, right? Well, despite a ton of research, I'm still not actually sure what kind of company Revolver is, or what Cole Atkins' role within the company was. Here's what I do know. Revolver Industries was a private research company owned and operated by a Ronald Truffaut, who from what I've gathered is more or less a venture capitalist. I use that term because, well, that's sort of what he does. He buys stuff. Businesses, real estate, nightclubs, patents, all kinds of stuff really. Finding information about him wasn't hard, but it wasn't easy either. He's quietly become a very rich man. I talked to a friend of mine, who we will call Trudy, though I won't reveal her real name, mostly because she asked, but also because I don't want to risk her job in any way. Trudy, who is very much involved in the business aspect around town and who just generally knows a lot of rich and smart people, had no idea who Ronald Truffaut was. In fact, she had to reach pretty deep down into her circle of friends and colleagues to find anything on him. And even then, what she found isn't something that immediately gives us the idea that Ronald is exactly on the up and up. Here's a play-by-play of how a conversation went with Trudy and a source of hers. Trudy. Hey, do you know anything about a guy named Ronald Truffaut? He owns some local property, a lot of it actually, and no one seems to know much about him. Guy. Oh, you mean Ronnie, like Jasper's baby brother. Jasper Truffaut. Now there's a name I have heard of. 
Jasper Truffaut is a bit of a legend in Alberta. She's a notorious crime queen who seems like a character taken straight out of a 40s noir film rather than reality. Her name is constantly in the news, indicted for this, arrested for that, suspected of this, or even fame and glamour magazines. Done as if a direct contrast to her rumored brutality and criminality, Jasper is stunning. She's the pinnacle of high fashion and style. She's an elegant ice princess with a gun in one hand and a Fendi bag in the other. She oozes sex appeal, which is probably why she gets so much press. Ronald, or Ronnie as he goes by, is Jasper's younger brother. Which makes me wonder, how legit was Revolver or anything Ronnie Truffaut was involved in? Was it all just a front? Did Cole know something? If so, how much? And does it have anything to do with his disappearance? More on Jasper, Ronnie, and the legitimacy of their businesses in a later episode. For now, let's go back to Revolver on a sunny Tuesday in August, nearly 20 years ago. Revolver Industries was birthed, according to public record, in May of 1987. In that same year, they filed for a variety of government research grants. They received a few generic ones that are easily attainable according to my research. But really, they were a privately funded organization that did research into, well, we don't know. Even Carrie didn't know. She said that Cole was very vague about what he did there. He wasn't one to bring work home with him. She said that Cole would say that they were doing research on alternate energy engines for small vehicles. She said that she never thought there was a possibility that Cole wasn't being honest that his story felt both authentic and believable. As far as I can tell, Revolver patented a design for some kind of nuclear-based engine in 1995. I talked to Dr. Amy Roy, a nuclear physicist and engineer, basically someone who, if there was a way to invent a nuclear car, she'd be the one to ask. I had her look at the patent and the designs within it, and what she had to say was, well, here she is. So Amy, tell me about these designs. What do you think? Well, they're interesting. Just interesting? And innovative, which is even more interesting. Can you explain what the design is? So the way their car is supposed to work is that it takes a small engine, an engine you'd find in like a lawnmower or maybe a golf cart is a better example, and infuses those ideas with that of a nuclear reactor. Isn't that a bit dangerous? It is. But they propose using such a small amount of nuclear material that the result of a high-impact accident or meltdown would not be much worse than the result of a collision using a normal combustion engine. Except maybe the radiation, which is a big deal. (laughs) So why isn't this on the road then? There could be a few reasons, actually. Plutonium is incredibly expensive. And while just a small amount could run a car for a very long time, that cost would be astronomical, even compared to modern fuel prices. At that time, innovations in transportation technology were a bit of a faux pas. The government during that time was very pro-oil. It also may be that the electric cars or even hybrids are just more economical. Also, there's the matter of whether or not it actually works. You don't think it could? It could, but there are a lot of variables that go into such a complex machine. Like you said, if this works, why isn't it on the road? Right. It is a very interesting idea, though. Hey, you haven't heard of Revolver Industries, have you? I have not. Yeah, not many people have.
frustrating. For something that is public record by law, there is very little information available about Revolver. It's a complete enigma. Sure, I can see the entire history of their tax filings, employee records, but not a whole lot of what they were actually doing, or what the hell they had to do, if anything, with the disappearance of Cole Atkins. For now, let's go back to Jamie, who shared my frustration with the lack of information about this mysterious little company. What do you think they were doing? You think Cole was telling the truth about, what was it, alternative energy engines? No. You think he was lying? I don't know if lying is the right word, but I don't know if he was telling the truth. What makes you think that? I mean, he seems like a trustworthy and honest guy. You've even said so yourself. Don't get me wrong. Cole was the epitome of trustworthy. That's probably why they hired him. They saw what I saw. A guy they could trust to keep his mouth shut, if need be. And do you think there was a need be? Oh, yeah. What do you think they were working on, then? That's the question, isn't it? Jamie seemed convinced that whatever was going on at Revolver during the ten or so years it was operational, it was not what it seemed. He seemed convinced that they were involved, either directly or indirectly. And he seemed convinced that the missing 23 minutes was the key to crack this. I didn't disagree with him, but I was skeptical. Yes, someone had to have seen him. Some coworker or a friend or someone. Revolver employed over 50 people in a variety of different jobs. That's a lot of eyes. At the same time, they employed 50 people. That's a lot of people to keep quiet, or to threaten, or to be in on it. But still, there had to be someone who saw him after work on that August Tuesday back in 1998. And there was. There was a lot of information available about Revolver but nothing seemed inherently useful, or so I thought. While scouring the employee manifest for August 20th, I came across a name. Martin Molson. Remember that name. It's an important one. Why? Because Martin worked as a security guard for Revolver from 1989 until 1998. There were many security guards under the employment of Revolver during their lifespan. Their duties were pretty basic security guard stuff, Patrolling the grounds, keeping people out, keeping the peace, minor maintenance and cleaning duties, and letting people in and out of the parking lot. And on August 20th, Martin Molson was assigned to work the day shift at the front gate. He is the last person to see Cole Atkins alive. Martin was working the front gate at the time when Cole's keycard was swiped out of the parking lot. This is a fact. I checked with the employee logs, which was made police evidence. Martin wasn't hard to find. He's retired and lives in the Okanagan. He suggested we talk via Skype, which he said he does with his grandkids all the time. And honestly, he seemed very eager to talk to me, to talk about Cole. Here's our conversation. Hey, how are you today? Oh, I'm fine. Uh, just fine. Martin is 70. He's in good shape. He has a charming face, with eyes that smile at you as much as his big, wide-grinning dentures. He lives with his wife, Tabitha, who he calls Tabby, and who he's been married to for 47 years. Martin reminds me very much of my grandpa. He reminds me of everyone's grandpa. The kind of perfect Disney movie grandpa that always seems to have a collection of stories, tales of wonder of mystery, at his disposal. But I couldn't help but notice that in all of Martin's grandfatherly perfectness, there was a certain frailty to his walk. 
a carefulness in his speech and in his movements. And I'm quickly reminded that Martin, while exerting boundless youth, is still very much a man of 70. So why don't you tell me about that day? Well, what would you like to know? Just what you remember about that day or any day you feel is important to Cole. Anything about Cole Atkins in general, really. Well, I didn't know him that much. I mean, no more than our relationship entailed. And what was your relationship? Uh, co-workers, um, not colleagues. You know, the scientists, they're, they're an elitist bunch, but that's, from my experience at least, but not Cole, not really. Uh, we talked, I don't chit-chat most days, a hello, goodbye, how you doing, that kind of thing. So you didn't see much of him then? Mm, only at the gate or doing rounds. Uh, but I was a gate man most days. The cops talked to you, right? When he went missing? Oh, they did. But they didn't seem very interested in anything I had to say. They didn't seem very interested in anything anyone had to say. What did they ask you? Routine stuff, I imagine. They asked if I saw him, which I did. They asked me if I talked to him, which I did. They asked what time he left, and I told them. 4.49, right? A lot of people are hung up on that particular time. He didn't leave at 4.49. He didn't? The police report stated that the key card was swiped at 4.49. I imagine that's true, but he didn't leave. I remember distinctly that he pulled up, swiped his card to leave, but he'd forgotten something. So he backed up his car and went back in. My shift ended 10 minutes later, and he never came through that gate while I was on watch. I remember because that's the last time I saw him. None of that is in any of the police reports or accounts I've heard. I told the police that, but like I said, they didn't seem all that much interested in anything I had to say. Even back then, I was just some crazy old fool in a cheap polyester uniform. I was fired not too long after that. Fired? For what? <laughs> Being nosy, I guess. Being nosy? Yeah, Revolver was a, a very secretive kind of place. And when Mr. Atkins went missing, I started poking around. It didn't seem right to me. And why's that? Well, there was only one lunchroom for the entire staff. Now, it wasn't a big staff, but a lot of the scientists didn't like mingling with the help. That's how we saw it. I remember one time, and this wasn't too long before he vanished. I was eating lunch all by myself and Mr. Atkins sat down next to me. He didn't seem quite right that day, so I asked him what was the matter. And you know what he said to me? He asked me if I believed in God. I told him I did. He then asked me if I ever lost someone, which I told him I had. Then he asked me if I believed God was cruel for making me live while they got to die. I said, I didn't know. I mean, hell, I was just trying to eat my damn sandwich. Then he asked if I would want to see my loved ones when I die, if it would bring me peace. I said, I sure hope so. I mean, I didn't really comprehend what was happening at the time. It just seemed a bit odd. It didn't really hit home for a couple of weeks until after he was gone. But that's not all he said. And I still get chills thinking about this. He touched me on the hand and he looked me dead in the eyes and said, Go then. There are other worlds than these. Then he got up and left. What do you think that means? 
You know, at the time, I didn't have a clue. But as time has passed, and trust me, over the last 15 years or so, my mind goes back to that conversation a lot. At first, I thought he was trying to comfort me, trying to let me know that there's something beyond this life. But maybe, maybe he was trying to comfort himself. Like he knew his time was running short. Exactly. I mean, I wasn't mad at them for firing me. At first I was, but it made sense. They didn't want people sticking their nose where it didn't belong. And I don't blame them, given what they were doing in there. What do you mean? What were they doing in there? Um, the experiments. You mean the alternative energy engines? Nuclear cars and that kind of thing? That wasn't what they were working on. I wasn't no scientist by any means, but you didn't need to be to know that they were working on something other than, uh, how'd you say it, uh, alternative energy engines? That's maybe where they started, but it sure wasn't where they ended up. And where did they end up? I feel like whatever it was they were into, it was big and maybe bad. And I don't think Mr. Atkins took too kindly to it. I think he got a little too nosy as well. And they did what? <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. I don't mean to be rude, and please don't take this the wrong way, but you remember a lot about that time, and it was what, like 20 years ago? I barely remember last week. My mind's still sharp. Uh, my body, not so much, but my mind still works just fine. And I think about that time in my life sometimes, don't like to, but every so often it pops back in my head, creeps in there, usually on nights where I can't sleep. I barely remember the birth of my son, but I can't forget that day. Oh yeah, it gives me goosebumps. I just wish they found that security footage. From the lobby? They have it. No, not the lobby. The one from the parking lot. Next time on Broadcast. Since Robbie's death, Cole wasn't the same. I've heard everything from shrink rays to time travel. Something had to have happened, and someone had to know something. Broadcast Mysteries is produced by Joshua Roach. Music by Michael Feen. Logo and graphics designed by Alex Daranowski and hosted by me, Carolee Gerwing. Special thanks to Vince Muda, Jason Vandeviver, Mackenzie Leap, Kevin Martin, The Lobby Video Store, Will Pfeiffer, Nuno Soler, and Sarah Pullen. If you'd like to support us, follow us on Twitter at BC Mysteries, on Facebook and Instagram at Broadcast Mysteries, or you can email us at broadcastmysteries at gmail.com. Episode 2 will be released in July. Follow us or visit our website at broadcastmysteries.com for details.